We are so excited to announce that we're going to be running a new motherhood support group. Starting September 8th, Sina and I will be leading a 10-part group to help reduce stress and cope with the challenges of new motherhood. This workshop offers new moms with babies from zero to one weekly group sessions that cover issues such as body image, the impact of motherhood on relationships and identity, mindful parenting, and self-care. The new motherhood support group will provide a space for connection, safety, and empowerment as we embark on the journey of parenting together. You will leave this workshop with a better understanding of motherhood and friendships with other new moms. The workshop will start September 8th and be on Thursdays from 12 to 1.30 p.m. You can register on Eventbrite, link to our website and Instagram at lovelink.co, or email us at info at lovelink.co if you want to learn more. Hope to see you there. It's no different than really beautiful sessions that, that we all have, meaning therapists, with our clients, where you know, they get into a trusting state, um, they open up, and, and memories and emotions come up, and we're able to hold that for them. And I think you know, psychedelics do that exact same thing, but they increase the frequency and they increase the ease at which that happens. Welcome to Lovelink, your guide to love and connection in all forms. We're your hosts, Simone Humphrey and Sina Simon. Our guest today is a psychiatrist, speaker, and expert on psychedelics. He received his medical degree from UCLA, a PhD at Oxford, and served on the faculty of Harvard Medical School. He has been trained by MAPS and MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, and was featured as an expert on the Netflix show, The Goop Lab. He currently is in private practice in LA where he frequently works with clients, helping them to integrate their psychedelic experiences. We are so excited to have Dr. Will Sue on the pod. Welcome, Will. Yeah. It's so nice to have you. Yeah, it's good to be here. Yeah. So to start us off, um, tell us a little bit about the work you've been doing with psychedelics. Okay. Or maybe, actually, to start us off, could you tell us what are psychedelics? Mm. That's a good question. Um, and, and if you kind of dive into the field itself, like if uh, lots of people will have lots of opinions about it. Um, but I, I tend to not get hung up on the definitions too much. And I, I think about you know, Stan Groff, who's kind of one of the, the godfathers of the field. Um, he's a psychiatrist. Um, he... Um, also, maybe it'll be of interest. So he was actually was a psychiatry resident in um, in Switzerland or the Czech Republic. Uh, and and Albert Hoffman, who discovered LSD, was working at the same hospital. And so he had just discovered LSD, and it was being put into clinical use. And so during his residency, um, Stan started actually doing LSD psychotherapy. And so he's he's done. I think it's estimated about four thousand or more individual sessions that were done legally back when it was done. So. The guy knows a lot about psychedelics, and so his definition, which is my favorite, is that um, he calls them nonspecific amplifiers of the unconscious process, oh. which I love because it doesn't, you know, it says anything that comes up is, is fair. It can be visual, it cannot, it can be auditory or, or tactile, whatever. It's just, you know, allowing us access to things that we already have access to. Mm -hmm. So any kind of substance that allows us to open up these doors mm -hmm. um, into our unconscious and amplifies them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think if we use that and we kind of look more into what, what's become normal uh, for us, I mean, 
at some level you can even think of things like alcohol or or high dose caffeine or that sort of stuff but mm-hmm. yeah, just getting into the subtleties of it mm-hmm, but yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and how did you become interested in psychedelics um so it's it's an interesting story i'll, I'll try to keep it short though because it's a long one but um i had just finished my internship um in psychiatry at the massachusetts general hospital in boston and um had kind of jumped through a lot of hoops right like uh you know, at college, it was like, you know, if only I get through college, I'll be happy when I get into medical school. And then I got to medical school. I'm like, oh, no, there's this residency thing. And if I just do that, I'll get I'll be happy. And then I ended up doing a Ph.D. also. And I'm like, OK, well, if I just finished that. And so basically I, I jumped through a, a bunch and all the hoops that I had available to me. And then I finally finished my internship um, uh, in Boston. And then I we had our first psychiatry rotation um, and I remember one of our first lectures, they were saying, okay, we're going to give you a lecture on, you know, what, what is the best evidence we have for medication for a psychiatric illness? And it was for SSRIs for depression. And I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like, you know, this double-blind crossover study, blah, blah, blah. And we see about 30% of people no longer have depression after six months. And I was like, at that point, I was like 30, 32, 33. And then... I was like, what the fuck? Like, sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to cuss oh, yeah. on here. But, like, <laughs> no, but really, this, this hit me hard. I was like, what? And then they were like, the professor was then saying, he's like, and that's compared to placebo, which is about 19%. And I'm like... Pretty disheartening. It, huge, huge. Yeah. It just hit me because I'm like, what did I spend 13 years of my life right after high school doing? You know, I told myself that that this is going to be fulfilling in this career, and I'm like, for 10% better than placebo. And and it really threw me into a depression. Um, I actually got suicidal, and I was thinking, yeah, that, that I didn't know what to do. I almost dropped out. I actually applied to management consulting firms because I was like, okay, well, that's going to make me happy. But I had been, you know, through the ringer enough where I was like, that's not it. At that time, I didn't really have interest in... Um, in um, therapy, to be a therapist, I wanted to be like a you know prescribing doctor and, and wanted to do research to, to create new medicines. Um, so I really had to do a lot of soul searching and I really went into therapy for the first time. And I was, um, I saw a psychoanalyst, a traditional analyst. I was on the couch four days a week um, within a few months. Mm. And it was very beneficial. And um, pretty quickly, I also got into dream work. And that's important because um, at that time also a part of my background is that my my family raised us Jehovah's Witness. And so drugs were like what I considered drugs at that time. I'd never really tried. I'm like, these are dangerous. These are addictive. Um, So at that age, I was just doing dream work. And then my childhood best friend who kind of did the opposite of me, he didn't go to school until after like the 08, 09 crisis, a financial crisis in the U.S. So he actually just finished college this past June. Um, Mm -hmm. But when I was going through this, he had just started college. And so uh, he was taking physics. And then um, one of his friends from his physics course ended up um, um, introducing him to DMT. And so he started using it. And he was like, Will, you've got to check this out. And like, you know, it's the most fascinating thing. And I'm like, no, these are drugs. These are dangerous. Like, what's wrong with you? I was worried about him, actually. And then finally, though, after months of it, he was like, um, you know, this, they, they say that they've done research on this in the 50s and 60s, and it's made in the brain, and they think it's what's responsible for REM sleep, or sorry, when we dream during REM sleep and during near-death experiences. And that caught my attention because I'm like, wait, I'm doing dream work, and he's telling me that this, 
you know, um, is made in the brain and it's responsible for dreaming. And so I actually went to PubMed and looked it up and I saw all these papers from the 50s and 60s. And one in particular that stands out um, was done at the a study that was done at the NIH by um, this guy, uh, Richard Axelrod, who had actually won the Nobel Prize a few years earlier for discovering adrenaline. I'm like, mm. so that's when my, my mind kicked in. I was like, wait, you know, are we being told the truth? Why was a Nobel laureate studying these psychedelics like in the 50s and 60s? And so pretty quickly after that, I got really interested in them. And then kind of one thing led to another, you know, what synchronicities or whatever we want to call them or, or just being prepared and aware. Um, I ended up um, getting introduced to Rick Doblin, who, who started MAPS, and he actually lived a couple blocks from the hospital that I was training in. So it was really synchronicity after synchronicity, and we got to know each other. And, and can you say what MAPS stands for? Ah, good. Uh, so MAPS is the, it's a nonprofit called uh, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Um, and it's really been, you know, you know, I think of Rick and, and MAPS as really the reason why this is all happening now, right? And, you know, in many ways, psychedelics makes sense to everybody right now but rick really started maps formally in the early 80s like much much before anyone thought that these could be helpful and, and we'd given up on them really as a field and so um it's just yeah it, it's been really beautiful to have that connection with him and friendship and he's really supported me throughout so that was really the start and within i think a year and a half two years i had gone to the maps training to get trained how to use mdma um, for ptsd and yeah it's kind of just been yeah unfolding since then. How do you understand why there was this shift in the medical community from going from exploring psychedelics to completely dismissing their value? Um, I think of that as, as you know, like almost purely political. Um, you know, this was all happening, the, the hippie movement meaning when I say this, and, and the use of LSD, etc. And then you had um, so I trained at Harvard, right? And it was kind of just by chance that Timothy Leary and, and that group who had a research group doing LSD therapy um, had, had decided to take it out of the lab, right? And they started giving it to students, and then it really started a whole uh, movement within the hippie, um, move, the ca counterculture, I guess we should say, not necessarily hippie. Um, and then, you know, you, you got the government that, that started hearing about the, the, um, this movement, and they were saying, why are we going to war? Why are we killing people in Vietnam? And that became threatening. And so Richard Nixon ended up just kind of overnight saying, these are now illegal. Um, he started scheduling these. Which, again, like, like when I first heard the stories in the beginning, I was like, oh, no big deal. But that's like the president right now all of a sudden saying this thing that is being studied in medical labs, in research uh, universities, all of a sudden I'm going to say this is illegal. Like it makes no sense. It's almost, I mean, I guess it does hearken a little bit to, to what's happening right now in Trump. But um, so I think of it as, as really political. I mean, the data was, was good and, and it was, you know, these were safe substances to be studying. So, yeah. yeah. What kind of data was coming out of the psychedelic research back then? Yeah. So as I mentioned, DMT was being studied. Um, I don't, it was not being studied in, in humans back then, but there was a lot of animal studies and people were like looking in the brain and the uh, spinal cord fluid. Um, uh, you know, and there's, there was definitely the LSD therapy um, uh, studies that were being done by Stan Groff, which he initially started in the Czech Republic, but then he was brought over to, to Baltimore at Hopkins. And so half those patients he saw there. Um, MDMA, I don't think, was being studied clinically, but within the, the therapy community, and therapists were using it in their, in their offices at that time. It was actually really used as a, a therapy tool before, long before it actually became like a rave drug and a party drug. Um, 
Um, psilocybin, I don't think, also at that time. But yeah, I did. <laughs> therapists were using this sort of on their own terms, or was there formal training involved? No, there was. It wasn't formal because it was just this Unlike. this thing that was was legal, and people found that it was very useful. Um, and it was actually initially really started with couples therapy, which I do think it's a is a beautiful uh, potential use for this to really just get people to communicate. So and then. Mm-hmm. So a lot of. People, I mean, a lot of people I know have used MDMA, psilocybin, LSD recreationally. Mm-hmm. So how is the experience of using it in a therapeutic context different? I think a lot of people don't really understand what happens in therapy or what happens in a, in a therapeutic context. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How um, is it healing? Yeah. So I, I think of the actual, and I think this is important, you know, I, I think that everyone's really excited right now about psychedelics and, and their potential healing. Um, but I think it's going to be an important time this, this next year or two or five years um, that, that people understand how they actually work and not, not just the general public, but therapists, right? I, I think people see the papers, even therapists, and they're like, oh, you just like give this to someone and you do normal therapy. And, and to some extent, I mean, the, I think the mechanism of healing is the same, but, it, but we're not really trained to really um, deal with intense emotion. I think psychologists are much more than, than, than psychiatrists. And um, one thing I like to think about is, is that as especially psychiatry as a field is actually very uncomfortable with intense emotions. And I think about like the, the categories of the medications that, that we have, antidepressants, anti-anxiety, anti-psychotics. It's like if you're feeling anything, mm-hmm. we're going to push it down. Um, and so I think that's why it's going to be important to educate both psychologists and psychiatrists on how to use this, because we're giving something that actually amplifies and allows these emotions and memories to come to the surface and so that they can actually be, de- be dealt with. And I think that maybe transitions a bit into the difference between recreational use or um, uh, you know, therapeutic use. Um, there's other, I think, I think of like two or three other uh, kind of uses for them. Maybe I'll mention them briefly, but you know, I think you know, human potential and, and consciousness exploration, for instance, is a separate one that that's distinct and, and relevant. Um, and I also think of like spiritual exploration or enlightenment, which is feels a little bit different also than than just healing or just feeling better on a daily basis, but definitely related. And then I also think they can be used for escape or abuse, right? And so I think, just think it's really important for people to realize, you know, why are they using it and how are they using it? Um, but in terms of, you know, how, you know, I, I think in, in terms of the therapeutic mechanism, right, it, it's, it's no different than really beautiful sessions that, that we all have, meaning therapists, with our clients where, you know, they get into a trusting state, um, they open up and, and memories and emotions come up and we're able to hold that for them. And I think, you know, psychedelics do that exact same thing, but they increase the frequency and they increase the ease at which that happens. And so that's why I think we see the, the, the quicker benefits. And you also end up having these, at least with the psilocybin and the MDMA studies, which is really the major um, work that's being done right now, where you have eight, you know, eight hours or so to actually work with someone. And so um, it just also gives a lot more time. Um, and so, yeah, things just happen quicker. But I don't think there's anything, I don't like to think of them as something special. It's just, it's a, it's a tool or it's a mechanism to, to make use like of. It seems like it really takes away a lot of the defenses that people have. I mean, I think of some of the work that we do, and, and yeah. it can take you know, a year to kind of get people to feel safe in a room with yeah. you. Um, and so it sounds like with psychedelics, that just opens opens people up in a way that they can kind of even confront with themselves things that they've been really hiding from. Yeah, 
Absolutely, absolutely. I always hear when people have tried uh, psilocybin or MDMA, there's a feeling of lightness that comes mm-hmm. afterwards sometimes for mm-hmm. some people, like when those defenses have been temporarily at least washed away and yeah. you get to something more core, it seems mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also yeah. curious too because I think some of the experiences that some people have when they take psychedelics on their own is that it's hard to make sense of it, that they experience something really powerful or really significant, but it's almost overwhelming, or sometimes it can mm. be really scary, and it and it feels really hard, at least cognitively, to kind mm. of synthesize it and integrate it. Yep. So I'm wondering, I mean, because that's what the kind of more therapeutic work sounds like, is yep. really being able to understand it and, and work with the material. So yeah, I'm curious how you mm. help people to understand yep. their experience. It's a really good question. I, actually, I mean, also just realizing as I talk to you guys that I've I've never done a podcast with therapists, which is actually really really cool because you guys are asking very different questions. Um, I think that um, you know that's a nice thing about having someone that's trained, someone that's sober, someone that you trust with you. I mean, that, and there's other differences too, right? I mean, you're also doing this during usually morning hours um, with the MDMA and the psilocybin studies, so it's it's very different contextually than than doing this recreationally. Um, but after really building a, a significant amount of trust, you know, then you're just adding this amplification. Um, and, um, and, you know, again, I, it's my job to be there with these, with these clients. And so, you know, I let them know that, you know, there's, there's a lot of material that's going to come up, a lot of emotion. Don't worry about, pro- I mean, sometimes we process and it depends like on, on which substance you're using. They can work um, significantly differently. Um, but you know, I'm there with my notes. I, I'm there to, to 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 keep tabs and remember. And so it's more about just encouraging and, and helping them, you know, whether it's a feeling or emotion, just to 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 focus on themselves and to to trust themselves. And, and you the write M- notes while while they're in there. Um, it, it depends. You know, uh, with the MDMA work, for instance, you know, people spend about fifty percent of the time like in like uh, some people call it, like with eye mask and and headphones. And then you know that'll be times where 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 therapists will. Uh, write notes and stuff, but or otherwise they're engaging. I think you know for the most part when when people are engaging and talking to the clients, um, you don't write notes. So it, it's and it's yeah, but but there's kind of breaks in between, and you can you can. Yeah. What are the types of questions you might be asking uh, clients when they're in the when they're either on psilocybin or MDMA, mm-hmm. which are. Well, maybe actually before we get into that, <laughs> I think it might be helpful to know kind of what the experience is on different medicines. So whether it's ketamine, MDMA, psilocybin, are there others that you... Um, I think those are the main ones. I mean, I guess one can also think about the ayahuasca experience, which is something in and of itself. So um, I'll, I'll also put the disclaimer that... that so some of this stuff I'll, exp- I'll talk about from my own experience, um, but that, you know, some of this is anecdotal and talking to people because um, I, I don't, you know, personally do underground or illegal therapy. So I just want to make sure that, that, that that's clear. Um, but I've had my own experience taking MDMA in a legal setting. Um, part of the MAPS um, clinical training was, uh, gave me the opportunity to take it as part of a, a mini clinical trial. I also have experience personally um, with IV ketamine and also injectable ketamine high dose personally and also i've worked with it with clients uh, mostly with oral ketamine and i've also had experience uh you know in in peru with with ayahuasca and also a lot of my patients that will come to me um, have used ayahuasca in different settings um so mdma i think about is 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 really a beautiful tool because i think that's the one that that 
tends to connect with most Westerners. Like you don't necessarily have to be spiritual or be open to spirituality. I mean, because um, it really stays within what I think about or, or call this this plane of reality from like birth to now. You know, people don't tend to get into transpersonal, and that's a that's a Stan Groff uh, term, meaning you you don't tend to, you know talk or dead relatives don't appear you're not like uh, you know with ayahuasca seeing a, a panther or something appear in front of you and trying to make sense of that it's really lots of old memories and, and emotions that come up mm. and so i think that one just sits very well with western culture and i think that's why there's you know mdma plays a beautiful role in kind of introducing psychedelics to western society and you know, on the other end of the spectrum, you have something like ayahuasca that gets very transpersonal very quickly for people. You know, you have visions and there's these body movements and there's purging and there's chanting. And, and so that's on the other end of the spectrum. And you've got stuff in between, you know, and, and uh, psilocybin definitely, especially the way it's used in um, the research trials is a pretty high dose. So, so people do get these transpersonal experiences. And then you've got something like ketamine, where ketamine works very differently depending on the dose and also the route of administration, where lower dose oral ketamine tends to be more like on the spectrum of MDMA. So um, that's kind of a, just a little brief you know, snippet into that. And so each one of them, I think, you know, can be worked at differently with a guide or a therapist. And you ever um, create cocktails of, of them together? <laughs> <laughs> I definitely do not. That, that, that would or does, be the illegal. Research, does um, the research do that? You know, I think some people definitely think about and find benefits of, of potentially combining. I mean, I, I tend to think that these are all very incredibly powerful in and of themselves. Um, but I but I can see, you know, especially with ketamine. And that one, I think uh, I've talked to Rick, and I think there's some plans in the making for doing kind of a combo ketamine with MDMA, which I actually think could be very interesting because, you know, as therapists, we, we mostly get trained in terms of the mind and, and narratives and how do we break through psychological defenses. But one interesting thing that, that has really come up more personally, um, yeah, my, my own self-exploration and, and with clients is the body and, and that the body, I, I think of it personally as having like its own uh, defenses, its own tensions, its own uh, hesitations that's separate from the mind. Uh, sometimes they can combine, but uh, I mentioned that because, uh, and definitely all the psychedelics have a physical component, but, but ketamine is very, very powerful in terms of it's the way I have experienced and people tend to experience um, kind of a physical release. And, and I think of it when I've had my experiences that it's like I have just more control and more awareness of my body than I've ever had in my life. It's like I feel like I can move um, uh, yeah, my joints, my limbs, all of it, and, and just have a lot, a lot of awareness. And so I think, um, you know, something like MDMA, where, where it's definitely a heart opener, like that's the way I think of it most, but combining it with something that, that has a strong physical component and opening could be very powerful, even though all the psychedelics in and of themselves also have a, a physical component for sure. But I think, you know, potentially that would be an interesting combination to mm -hmm. study. And in what way do you think working with the body is helpful in psychedelics, like being more in touch with kind of all of the experiences that you described? What yeah. And so I, I would that? actually say it's, I wouldn't even say it's helpful. I, I think it's critical. And so, um, you know, I, th you know, there's much more and more awareness of psychosomatics and, and mind body, right? It, it's, you know, when I started medical school in whatever that was, 2003, we had like the center for like complementary and alternative medicine and acupuncture was there. And that was thought of as being this like fringe weird thing. But now like most people think about the mind body and especially with wellness taking off the way it is. Um, 
And so, especially with the MDMA, MDMA work, um, there, there's actually a lot of body work that happens. You know, it's not something that's talked about very widely. Um, I think there's many reasons why that's not at this point, and, and it's probably you know, not necessary to go dive into those. But in the training that we have with MAPS, um, they talk about body work. Um, you know, really Stan Groff and, and Rick Doblin, the history of MDMA therapy is through holotropic breath work, which is, was founded by Stan after these uh, substances were made illegal because he wanted to keep continuing to explore um, ways of exploring our consciousness that couldn't be taken away from you. And so uh, one of the, the five major components of breath work is body work. And so a lot of the early trained people, um, both formally trained, but also underground therapists come from the holotropic breathwork community. And so a lot of body work is done. I mean, I've experienced it myself for sure during my own sessions. Um, and, you know, I even in, in fascia is something that's becoming very interesting to me um, in, in medical school and in residency. We're taught that fascia is just just dead tissue, like it, it's irrelevant. It's connective tissue. You know, it gets cut and, and, you know, to try to heal different things or, you know, when people are in accidents. But it's interesting because the more I get into, like, the more people I know in, in the wellness community that do body work and acupuncture, it's like, no, like, the fascia is incredibly important. And so, and you'll see memories that are um, really jogged with people while um, body work is being done with psychedelics. And it's really impressive how it really can, can generate um, emotions and, and memory. And so I actually think of, you know, potentially fascia is, um, you know, a, a very, um, um, its potential is high for actually being um, how we might hold memories in our bodies, right? I mean, no one's actually even proven that, that consciousness is in the brain. It's an assumption that Western medicine has made, but perhaps consciousness is, is all over us. Um, and, and fascia just seems to be, um, yeah, like I said, an, an interesting thing to study in acupuncture, right? The needles are put into the fascia in, in, in different areas. Yeah, I mean, I think just anecdotally with, with clients, you know, some clients come in talking about getting a massage, mm -hmm. right? And just being touched and uh, starting to cry mm -hmm. because they're being touched, yep. right? And, and not even it, whatever was happening for them uh, consciously was... Yeah. Uh, you know, this uh, there's a piece that's out of awareness because mm -hmm. it's sitting and sitting in the body. So yearning for touch, I feel like we're yeah. such a yeah. kind of, um, touch craved society, Absolutely. and we're in a touch taboo, right? Big yeah. time. Big time. Don't touch kids. Don't you know? Everybody's. Um, mm -hmm. It's all about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've also heard several stories from friends who have had psychedelic experiences where um, a part of their body really draws a lot of attention whether that's pain or whether that's a sensation and it'll actually elicit a memory of some mm -hmm. sort of physical trauma like yeah. either a wound or a cut something that they had completely sort of been disconnected from and it was out of their awareness but then yeah. on psychedelics a very specific sensation that links up to a very specific yeah. experience yeah and i think that's so kind of wild that we mm -hmm. can that our bodies sort of have this memory mm -hmm. i mean not just trauma and psychological pain but also real physical pain that it's remembered Yep. It's yeah. like Bessel van der Kolk's, you know, yeah. the, the, the body, body keeps, keeps the score, the score yeah. right? It's so true. Yeah. But why is it that psychedelics would bring that up? Why do you think that is? I so know. again, I would, I would actually go back beautifully to Stan's definition. They're nonspecific amplifiers of the unconscious. And so if there's a physical component, it just opens that up. And, mm. you know, when I say I think it's actually critical, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, there's no studies that have been done, but I've, I've talked to, to people at MAPS about, you know, what if we go back and look at the videos? What percentage of people um, actually got body work? You know, does that correlate with the people who did better? 
um, how much time is actually spent doing body work. And I would personally, from my experience, having had the MDMA session, um, you know, and I guess a quick tangent also, like if you think about how people explain how physical the ayahuasca experience is and they're, they're purging and moving energy through the body. But I would say, you know, say in also talking to people that have had MDMA therapy, you know, I would say it's something like a third to half of the benefit I would say is actually from physical work. And, and, and it's not necessarily all hands on, but, but I, I think, you know, one would miss a huge component of it if you don't do the body work. Um, I also say that, uh, or I want to say that, that maps also is big on saying, if you don't know what you're doing, if you're not trained, if you're not comfortable, don't do the body work. Cause you can also potentially, um, I mean, I wouldn't say you necessarily traumatize or harm someone, but but it's really like you, you should get the training to, to do it. And so and maybe you can if somebody has had some traumatic experience mm-hmm. um, that hasn't been processed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I'm curious. Yeah. I'm so curious. So you were talking about um, earlier in the interview how you had been really depressed mm-hmm. uh, in, after residency or during residency. Mm-hmm. And there was something about using psychedelics that helped that helped you during that time. Yeah. And I'm wondering, like, what was healing for you about using psychedelics when you were in that depressed state? Um, well, again, in terms of the, the major experience that, that I had with MDMA, that, that came in 2017. So that was not until four years or so after the initial experience, but I definitely think that they're tied together. Um, Again, by then I was like a, a seasoned patient. I, I was like, I had been in therapy for four years, four days a week. Um, and the way I would, dis- and I also, luckily, as I got more interested in psychedelics, um, I transitioned from my first psychoanalyst to, again, was a classically trained Freudian analyst, but was not very spiritual. And so once I started getting more and more interested in asking questions um, about psychedelics, I really found that there was a massive limit there. And, and that really, I, I started feeling judgment. Um and it was something I worked through and you guys know that's a big thing, but I actually ultimately trusted myself and I'm like, this is about him, not about me. And so I, then I ended up discovering, uh, Jungian analysts. I didn't actually, we weren't, we weren't, we didn't even have a single lecture at our program on Carl Jung. And so, and, and then I learned about them through the maps training and I was like, oh wow, like there's these therapists that exist that actually think about the transpersonal that, that don't seem to judge at all and actually honor these visions that people can have. And so I, I switched over to that um, type of an analyst. And, and that's when I started getting kind of more in tune with my body. And so I think that is, is really being an important thing as I was as I was first honoring that we have a body and that this could be part of healing is, is when I had this MDMA experience uh, in 2017. And that just really just accelerated. I mean, I I don't know how long it would have actually taken to do the work that I did in that one session. And I'll emphasize plus the weeks after the the sober work that was done in therapy is critical to the work that I did. Um, And yeah, I mean, but I think it would have taken years. I mean, to at least years. I don't know if I would have necessarily gotten to it in this lifetime if, if I hadn't. um, Was there something that opened up for you during that MDMA session that surprised you? or was different from what you'd already been processing. Yeah. And so, you know, when I think about healing, I, I use the word or the, the concept of catharsis a lot. And I, I think of catharsis having three significant components. We have like the emotional memory. Um, so the actual emotion that comes up with the narrative memory of something. And so you connect the two and usually those get disconnected during a traumatic experience and we split them, right? We'll experience the emotion 
uh, a similar but disconnected experience and that gives us symptoms you know in, in a lot of our life and then we'll have memories that pop up but we could each probably talk about a a seemingly traumatic thing right now and we can even laugh and smile but we won't feel the emotion as we're talking about it um, and i think with the safety that comes with psychedelics especially with mdma those two can come together but i think those alone aren't enough um, and i think about a third component which is is it happening in an empathic setting and for me empathy is different than sympathy like i think of empathy as being um, my definition is that 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 we have the ex we, we feel that someone un else understands our experience Right? And to me, that doesn't even take words. It's just, it's just a, a knowing in the heart that, yes, that this person gets me. And you know, usually one of those three components fails in something that hasn't been processed before. And so for me, I had had this memory of, of loneliness that had popped up. And I think you know, all of us suffer from some form of loneliness. And this, these tend to be um, things that are set in us pretty early. And so I had this memory, this, this narrative memory that I kept telling my therapist over and over about um, this one time when I was around nine years old when my dad beat me. Um, and it was a particular time that was different because I, I had the anticipation of him beating me. I got in trouble at school. My mom called him at work and he was um, on his way home. And so it was the first time where it was just like I was waiting for it to happen. And I, in my kid's mind, I remember... Um, also, he would, yeah, so what happened in this memory was like he stripped me down in my underwear, started beating me with this belt. My mom was like watching off to the left. And I got scared and thinking, oh my God, he's not stopping. And then thinking, oh my God, he's, is he going to kill me? And then, I, you know, what I didn't recognize until actually the last few years of what I, was I dissociated. I remember hearing the belt hitting me and I remember the pressure on my arm and my back, but I didn't actually feel the pain. Like I remember that when I was a kid. And then I got up, ran to my room. Mm. And I was like sitting in my bed holding the pillow and like feeling my back and these welts. And I was like, nobody loves me, nobody loves me. I remember saying that. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I remembered that memory and I said it over and over in therapy, but it wasn't getting better. Yeah. And then during this MDMA session, I was actually struggling with a breakup at that time. And, and so the, the loneliness welled up and this memory came up. And um, an important part that I also want to say was that this was not, I had many other experiences during that MDMA session where I think there was, something came up and it was fully moved through and catharsed during. But this was one that continued on the weeks after. Mm. So I actually kept feeling depressed. I was actually more depressed and suicidal than I'd ever been in the weeks after. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, I thought this thing was supposed to help me and I know all this stuff and, and why am I still feeling shit? And I remember it was like a few weeks after that I ended up seeing, I went in to see my therapist um, and I was seeing her at three times a week at that point. And I remember just sitting there and I was like, I, I was the first time I really sat silent for like 10 or 15 minutes because I'm like, I'm like, what's the point? I, I keep telling you how lonely I keep telling you how shitty I feel. I tell you like that I feel like dying. Mm. Um, I was like, what's the point? And she's like, I remember this, this felt critical because I think this is what opened up the empathy. Um, and she looked over at me and she was like, Will, she's like, do you really not think that I understand how lonely you feel? And unlike with friends or, or partners or something where I'm like, you know, where you talk a little bit, but then it's like, oh yeah, you'll be fine. Or the guys will be like, oh yeah, you'll find someone else. Don't worry. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I know you'll go have a beer or something. I actually looked at her and I was like, no, I don't think you understand how lonely I am. Mm. And so then we dug deeper, <laughs> getting a little emotional, but like, and so we, the rest of that session, we dug deeper and deeper. And I told her how bad, how, how much I wanted to die, etc. And at the end of it, like I got up just to leave and I had my three private practice clients right after. And I was like, fuck, I have to like drive back to Boston. I feel shitty. And then she looks at me and she's like, Will, she's like, promise me you're not going to kill yourself. And I'm like, I'm not going to tell you I'm going to kill myself. I was like, I know what will happen. I'm going to get admitted to a hospital. And then 
So as she shut the door, she was just like, she's like, know that I have a lot of love for you. She's like, just know that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it was interesting. I, I drove back to Boston, um, saw my three clients, and I used to have this really bad chest pain, which would keep me up at two or three, four in the morning, especially when I was feeling really bad. Mm-hmm. You know, and those are the, the worst times for me for loneliness, because like nobody was awake, I was by myself. And I had felt it to some extent all of my life. I thought it was just like a part of me. And I got up after that third patient um, that I saw and done for the evening. And I noticed that there was a lightness in my chest. Like I hadn't, it was that that feeling had gone away. And I was just like, wow, this is interesting. And it's it's never come back again. And so that was at the age of 37. Um, and that's really why I started realizing, wow, there's there's this physical component. And, and it really, you know, I think that last session with her was really the empathy that I needed, right? Yeah. Like she really heard more than anyone how awful this felt. So. Yeah. It's a long story, but yeah, for no, me, that, that's dude, what really story. solidified how and important powerful. this is. Yeah. 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 And it also really, I think, weaves together how important all of these ingredients are mm-hmm. that to really kind of capture the aloneness that you felt. You needed to open those doors, but then you were kind of raw yeah. and wounded. And to have her meet you there and yeah. really, really be there, yeah. I think, is the other piece, seems like a really crucial piece of that yeah. to know that someone can support you. Yeah. And what's coming to mind right now is then, you know, it, it, it's sad. But I, I, I get numerous emails and messages per month. Like I just got one last week and that was just like, oh, I, you know, so-and-so just had a, a psychedelic experience and, you know, an underground setting last weekend. It's my friend. And these are just voicemails. And it's like, mm-hmm. um, and they're psychotic or they're manic. And, and can you help them? And, and you know, I, I don't really step in in those situations, you know, because, I mean, it's just many reasons I don't. But it's you know, more and more people are seeking underground experiences because everyone's excited about psychedelics, but really they're not going to become widely available for years at least, right? And and even, I think there was a, a study that looked at ayahuasca ceremonies in New York and San Francisco, probably now about 10 years ago, and it was estimated there was 200 or so ceremonies per weekend. So it's it's much, much higher now. I but read some crazy statistic too that more people are seeking underground psychedelic mm-hmm. um, experiences than psychotherapy. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Which uh, I think it is makes, it's mm-hmm. replacing us. Yeah, <laughs> fully replacing us. Or maybe we'll have to we'll have to combine it yeah. eventually. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I bring that up because it's again this as therapists, it's so important, or as as people that we know that this this empathic component, this safety piece, is so important to to the deepest of the deepest of traumas. It's not to say like if you're with friends and you're intentional and you guys get together on Saturday night once a month or something to do MDMA together, that that can't be incredibly healing. It can, but the the deepest deepest wounds, you know, that I think of that can can be problematic. I think really require skilled people, and so you know, as a therapist, even and as, as a licensed doctor. You know, I'm a supporter of, of the underground therapy network, I'm a, I, but I think more and more people need to be trained to know what they're doing because, you know, and, and you know, because I think some people, especially in, in the research academic fields, get threatened by underground therapy. But it's like there's, there's plenty. There's, there's, there's so much illness out there that, you know, I, you know, it'd be interesting one day to do MDMA for, you know, psychotic disorders, MDMA for personality disorders. There's, mm. there's plenty to go around. But if we like help people yeah, heal heal themselves and heal each other with these. Like I think, yeah. And I think it, what you're speaking to is so important that it really takes time. I yeah. mean, you sat with somebody for eight hours, nine hours. I mean, yeah. that's what these experiences are, mm-hmm. and it requires that time and attention. Yeah, um, absolutely. In, in order for it to be really healing at the deepest at the deepest level. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that story is so touching. The theme of loneliness. I mean, I think that. If I if I were to distill down 
every mm-hmm. everybody's Absolutely. issue when they come in it's Absolutely. at the core it's all yes. loneliness Absolutely. it's all loneliness Absolutely. yeah so this seems like incredibly healing and powerful for that yeah yeah yeah. yeah, it makes me think of this this quote I read recently by William Blake that says like something to like when when you tug at any one thing in the universe, you you find that it's connected to everything else, and so and I think that one thing is is connection, but but to really find that deeply, um, yeah, is is going through the aloneness. It, it's it's the awareness or the 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 I would say the 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 veil or the smokescreen that we're that we're alone but really really we're all connected and so that's one of the beautiful things that psychedelics tends to be a consistent message from it from Mm -hmm. when people use it responsibly so we invite you to spend the next few moments to just listen Brought to you by Nan, spelled N-O-N. The sound meditation app for iPhone, where no two sessions are alike. So I recently actually reached out to a friend, another clinician who had an MDMA experience mm-hmm. with a sitter. Mm-hmm. And then I met with that sitter and I'm now going to have my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's $1,500, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, is a lot for me, but also something that I can afford. Yeah. Um, but I think about this is really like something people with money can access right yeah. now. This is not something most people have access to. Yeah. And even for me, it feels like a stretch, right? So um, it seems like a kind of exclusive thing almost. Yeah. Um, but when you break it down per hour. Oh, when you break it down per hour, yeah, that's you, true. And when you compare it to psychotherapy. That's right, that's right. It's actually... It's a, actually a de- good deal. It's a good deal. It's a good deal. <laughs> <laughs> right. right? It's yeah. not the two, 250 a session yeah. for 45 no. minutes. No. But, right. Yeah. That's true. That's true. <laughs> right. But then there's all the processing following. And, right. So it yeah. actually comes out to maybe like $100 an hour. Or something. That's true. That's <laughs> That's yeah, true. that's true. Yeah. Right. It's interesting, yeah, because the underground network is getting more and more expensive. But I would actually just caution people to to follow and trust themselves. Like a lot of people are going for the first or second underground therapist that they hear about or they meet, and mm. assume that because someone actually charges more that they're that they're better. And that is a massive one that I the, the best best healers that I know. There's only I would say like a handful of underground therapists that I would trust myself or for mm. um, a loved one in the country. I would say, and I know you know, the majority of the MAPS therapists, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And they're, 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 they're good people. They're skilled people. But for me, it's like, I, I want to know if, if something, a spiritual crisis comes up for me or a physical thing that someone knows how to, how to really work through it. And I bring that up because, you know, two or three of them that I think about probably charge, I mean, some of them do it for free and, 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 yeah. and some of them, um, 
do it for very little. And, um, and some, and, and like three of these five people that I'm thinking about are not even licensed therapists. They're, they're just amazing humans who have done their own work and, and just understand it. And so I'm going to talk to you after this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, I, I think just yeah. trusting your gut and, 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 you know, hopefully waiting, you know, trusting that, that these come to us when, when the time is right is, is really important. For someone doing it on their own or doing even an underground group practice, but without a kind of um, assisted psychotherapist helping them through this, I mean, do you have recommendations on kind of how to help people, I don't know, go into the experience with a certain intention or help process it on their own? Or like, what what would be something that you would yeah, suggest mm. or recommend? <laughs> now that that's a no, it's an it's a really good question and it's a really complex one. Um, so you know, I think of you know, I, I really think that the MAPS protocol for MDMA is a really good one, where they have about three or four sessions with someone. They'll have the MDMA session. Um, there's check-ins every day for a week, but then you know, you have three integration sessions over three weeks and then you dive back in. So, cause I think, you know, for a skilled therapist, it probably takes about three to four sessions to really get to know someone, to ask the right questions, to learn about, you know, probably their top three major attachment issues and to build trust. And so, you know, I think that's one component. Um, but the other one I, that is very near and dear to my heart is again, the body work. And I don't think, again, there's, there's no training in that. And if anything, again, they teach us not to touch patients. And so, you know, when I think about that, I, especially say if clients are are bent on or, or, you know, or have decided to go do ayahuasca experiences, um, you know, I'm I'm happy to help them prepare. You know, it's not something I recommend to them um, because that's also, you know, I think a lot about licensing and risk to licensed therapists, but if if they're set on going, then I'm happy to help them. Um, But then I think about meditation and getting into the breath and, and breathing through the physical discomfort and so that they can actually not get scared of that and pull away because it can be, that makes the psychedelic experiences uh, even scarier. And you can stay in that place to kind of resist going through. And it can be, you know, what people will call a bad trip. But I don't think of them as bad trips. They're, they're difficult experiences that, that weren't kind of uh, fully worked through. And so um, I really am a lot into, again, breath work and, and meditation. Um, and not stillness meditations, but really just being able to, to release the mind, release the body sensations and go through it. And so... That's another important component that, um, yeah, that more I, I learned on my own um, as opposed to in, in training. Yeah, it seems like so much of what you do now is kind of almost like the opposite of what you were trained to do in medical school, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk a little bit about sort of where you are now versus where you've been and, and um, yeah. They just seem like polar opposites, medical training versus, I mean, you said you don't even prescribe psychiatric <laughs> meds anymore. Yeah. Well, on occasion I do. Like, I, you know, I do think some psychi- psychiatric meds can be helpful. Like if someone's having, you know, again, I, I say what we call mania or what we call psychosis, which I often think of sp- as spiritual crises, you know, getting someone to sleep can be very important. And so I'll, I'll prescribe sometimes. Or if someone just has insomnia and, and they're starting their, their normal work, that just, you know, we, we need a good balance between... Um, you know, just being rested um, to just do normal therapy work, for instance. But we also need to be able to feel feel the symptoms. And so, you know, often if I'm working with someone, they're coming in on two or three different SSRIs, and I have to get them off that so they can get in touch with their body again. But it's a balance. And so meds can sometimes definitely be helpful. We just overuse them. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I do think most of what I do, I learned on my own um, during, and most of it during my own 
my own healing experiences, my own therapy. Um, you know, I think definitely the, the thing that's becoming more and that, that appears to be at least more and more of interest to people is this, this area of transpersonal psychology and, and spirituality and, and, and that sort of stuff. And that's definitely not taught at almost any of the programs in the country. Um, and that, you know, it's just stuff that I've continued to explore on my own. I, I just started a training in constellations work. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that, but it's like group work and group energy and, and, um, you know, you have what, what impact energetically does your, your ancestry have? Like we were talking about our backgrounds, you know, and, you know, our families or, you know, we've all immigrated at least or our ancestors did. And usually that happens from countries that weren't doing very well. And so what is it, what, what trauma does it, you know, continue or, um, um, <clears throat> perpetuate in a family lineage if, if there's been, you know, people that had to leave their home essentially. And so, um, yeah, so I'm getting more into, to these sorts of topics on top of kind of the classical, you know, psychotherapy and, and body work that I mentioned. Can you talk a little bit about how psychedelics can, um, access kind of more spiritual questions or spiritual, um, yearnings? Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. I, th- you know, as I was making that distinction between say things that are, more on the plane of this reality, MDMA, and then ayahuasca on the other realm. Um, you know, I find naturally, I, I you know, definitely have patients that, that would consider the, some, themselves religious, Christian, etc. And, and, you know, if, if someone's not interested, I always, it's like one of my five things, uh, major things that I check on in the first few visits with someone is, what's your spirituality? Like, what, what's your background with religion, etc. Just to see. And, and if someone's just not into that, or that's not something that, that they're wanting to explore at this time, I don't go into it. But, but naturally, as people, I think, explore themselves with or without psychedelics, um, and they do more and more of the healing, they just become more curious about why are we here? But if, if you know, you're having difficulty with relationships or abuse or just work is so hard, like the, the mind doesn't have really the space to go out and just, just ask these bigger questions of why we're here. But it seems naturally over and over that the more people do, they become more spiritual and more curious about why we're here. And so, you know, I think, it, yeah, and then, then psychedelics, I think, and the experiences that we have naturally just continue to follow that. So, so what kind of spiritual experiences do people have on psychedelics? Um, Are there some themes? You know, I think of, you know, some clients that I have or, again, ayahuasca is really the easier one where, where people tend to connect to other, you know, to dead relatives or, or spirit guides or, or entities that they describe, you know, when, when on the ayahuasca experience that, um, yeah, that, that they can work with or that they have some connection with or they can sometimes feel scary, etc. But, um, you know, and, and people also describe a timelessness often. It's another component of, of not just psychedelic use. I mean, people also describe timelessness in, in, in the present state. Um, but, you know, I, I think of, of these are all experiences that, that can be enhanced and explored within psychedelic experiences. I think it's, it's interesting, um, those studies that have been done with people who are dying um, and in, in palliative care, mm-hmm. and then they, I guess it's it's mainly psilocybin maybe that they, yeah. and so it relieves death anxiety. There's mm-hmm. this way in which a lot of people have, you know, r- terrified of dying and then they'll have the psychedelic experience and yeah. feel tr- just an enormous relief. Like, And maybe it's part of feeling connected to the universe yeah. rather than just here and I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of the early studies, but I think there's also ongoing um, studies still with psilocybin and, and end-of-life anxiety. So, yeah, and they've been very, very powerful. Mm-hmm. 
taking a step back too. I feel like psilocybin has a beautiful way of, of having a lot of perspective mm-hmm. on things, perspective on pain, perspective on a life in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of people could use that now. <laughs> right. Yeah. Especially when we think about how focused we are, how myopic we are on mm-hmm. our anxieties to be able to take a step back and look at our lives and ourselves from the outside is really relieving. It takes so much pressure off. Yeah. Um, but we forget to, especially when we live in a big city like this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about microdosing? Because that seems to be something that's kind of vogue. Vogue. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Trendy. Yeah, it's, it's a great question, actually, and I mean, it's 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 a powerful, you know, tool and option. Um, the way I think about microdosing is, um, let's see, how do I set this up? Like. You know, you guys know about the the mystery or the intrigue that, that is around the therapy room, right? Like often patients will say out in the real world, you know, mm-hmm. how do I do this or that? And so there seems to be, uh, you know, this this something to the, the therapy room, the safety of it, et cetera, that, that people don't necessarily think of as real life. But really, you know, the more and more I work with people, and it's interesting, the more I have practiced myself, like I used to be practice very much like a psychoanalyst and, and patients didn't know anything about me and I was very blank with them and, and I didn't used to have social media. Like this year is really the first year I, I started using social media. But the more and more work I did personally, I, I just felt like I'm, I'm just more and more human with people, you know, and having awareness of boundaries, et cetera, is very important. But that you can work with it. And, you know, the reason I bring up that in, in the context of microdosing is that, um, you know, what, what I think is very powerful and beautiful about microdosing is that people can, say, take lower doses of something and it's not overwhelming or it's not something that, that, that you know, you can, that's going to be too much to be around people that are sober or your friends, etc. And, and, you know, there's, I guess I'll say stories about people that, that will say, go out on a Friday night, you know, they're, you know, alcohol is, is becoming something that people are more aware of is, is not something that's helpful, but that'll microdose and then they'll go out. Um, and it kind of opens up, I think of, you know, kind of similarly to alcohol where you can, there's some openness, there's more looseness, there's more confidence perhaps. And you can kind of play with these spaces more in real time, in real life with real people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and instead of the, you know, that, that therapy room experience. And so, I think of it kind of more just as a, as a real-time way to, to just, yeah, just play with boundaries and, and trust. Um, and so I think that's why it can be a very powerful tool. And again, and that's something where if you start to trust, you know, the, the source that you're getting it from in a dose, and again, you can do it intentionally with friends or, you know, people do definitely, in the, especially in Silicon Valley, take it to work and stuff, um, which obviously I, I would never advocate. But um but yeah, it, it's a really powerful tool. And, and also, you know, maybe you don't, it's, it's not so important that you have a guide or a therapist if you can't afford one and you don't have one because, you know, the the experience of it is, is not as overwhelming or powerful. Yeah, it almost makes me think about kind of like the mechanisms of change with exposure. Like mm, if that allows yeah, yeah. you to be exposed to kind of um, yeah. previously uncomfortable events and you learn, oh, I can be confident or I can be comfortable or I can be open. And actually this, I get so much more of an enriched experience than it just is helpful moving forward without the microdosing. Yeah. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Unless then people become dependent and feel like they need to microdose in yes. order to do this. So right. Can see that like backfiring. alcohol, right? Exactly. Like drop, needing it to drop defenses. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 But I guess sure. that is the kind of fine line with psychedelics is that it can be an incredibly healing and powerful experience or it can be abused yeah yeah so Um, what's next for you um so yeah i um yeah 
I'm originally from California, so I've been um, yeah, living on the East Coast now since 2011. So, I, you know, definitely always, I think a part of my life will be individual work um, with, with clients because I think that just enriches my learning and, and I love to do it. Um, so yeah, I've got some plans in the works to probably to move back to California at some time soon. My mom's still down there and there's some opportunities. I'm doing more kind of, you know, social media and talking and, and workshop sort of stuff. And so really with the goal of, of how do we, um, you know, just, just spread healing more. And it's interesting because if you would have talked to me even before three or four months ago, I was really gung ho, you know, pro psyched. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely still pro psychedelics, but I was like, this is the way. And, and really I just see now psychedelics as, as a tool within wellness and, and that we really don't need anything, right? Including psychedelics. If we could just be human with each other and be authentic, um, it's, it's really what, what caused these difficulties to begin with. And so, yeah, it's something that I'm, um, yeah, have, have more and more interested in him doing, uh, well, I'm doing my first big workshop in November in, in California at the uh, Goop. Um, if you guys know, familiar with Goop, so they have these amazing summits and they're very powerful. And so, What's your um, workshop? Um, our, our workshop, I'm um, doing it with a colleague of mine, Jennifer Freed, who's a psychologist and astrologer. Um, but we're doing, doing on, on alignment and so, or, or manifesting your reality. And so, you know, I think of alignment, if I can talk about that just, just briefly, is, is this is something that comes up naturally, again, with or without psychedelics. And it's like, so, you know, if I think about, you know, like if we're aligning to something, there's something to be aligned to, which I think of is our heart and our authenticity. And, and there's also such a thing as, as, being misaligned, right? And so I, I think about aligning our thoughts, our words, and our deeds, right? How do we clear our thinking on what we want? Like, like, what are we here to do? Our words, can we speak about what it is that that's our truth? And, you know, how do we get through the blockages of actually verbalizing our issues? And then uh, deeds, I think about what we're actually doing out in the world, whether it's the, the, the tasks that we fill our life with, or just movement, and how do we engage the world? And so that's something that came through me through, through my personal work. But, uh, you know, I'm finding more and more that then you can do this without psychedelics. And so I'm yeah, interested in, in engaging people more and just experiences with other, other people, other humans that are just authentic and, and you know, as another way of just, just getting the healing done without, without psychedelics or, or other modalities. Yeah. And how can people get in touch with you? <laughs> <laughs> or if they're interested in signing up for uh, one of your workshops? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the workshops and stuff I'll, I'll have on social media. Um, I suppose if, you know people can always go to my website and email. I'm, I'm, you know, pretty much full most of the time, so I'm not. I'm not. I, yeah, I don't take new patients very often. But um, yeah, I'll have the again the, the workshops and stuff on social media. So just yeah, my Instagram is my name. Um, what will w i l l dot s i u dot m d. So if anyone wants to follow there. Great. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This yeah. Has been so nice. Thank you. Yeah. Thank yeah. you guys. This is really fun. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. To stay in touch with us, sign up for our quarterly newsletter at lovelink.co, where we share our favorite articles and resources about love, sex, and relationships. Also, in future episodes, we plan on answering listener questions. So if you'd like your questions featured on our show, send us a voice memo using the Anchor app or send it directly to our email, info at lovelink.co. 
And if you have a second, truly, the best way you can help support us is to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. Just scroll to the bottom of the Loveling show page and let us know what you think. We thank you all again so much for listening. We're truly touched you take the time out of your busy schedule for us. Until next time.